Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. I want to introduce Jim. Is a Harvard graduate. He has a master's University of British Columbia diploma theology from Ottawa Theological Hall. He has written extensive articles and journals uh, and uh, also serializing a commentary on Genesis 1 to 11. He uh, has published in creation science journals, began his career as an urban planner, uh, responsible for business analysis and software development methods and tools for major technology company. Uh, behavioral sciences at Tyndale University. Uh, he has taught statistics there for 10 years. He's also served on the board of the Pregnancy Care Center in Toronto for over 25 years. And we're thrilled to have him with us. I believe Jim has come from Scarborough. Is that right? Home is Scarborough. And his daughter, Jennifer, is with us as well. And we're so... There she is. I see her. Yeah, she was sleeping. Okay. And Jennifer just sat up. And uh, we're glad to have Jim and his daughter. Would you give them a warm cornerstone welcome this morning? Wait until the end. Thank you. Let's do a sound check. Are we okay? Yep. And have we switched over? There we go. So, we didn't mention that we're changing our topic today. Because when I was here the last time, I did the evolution versus biblical creation and it's been just over a year or so. So if you were coming for that one, I'm sorry. We're going to switch topic and look at it slightly differently. So what we decided to go with is the cosmological crisis. And I, based on the comments that you made as you were introducing, I think it's very appropriate because it's the kind of topic that the world, we're inundated by the world on, just like we are on evolution. So the we have... In science today, in the area of cosmology, we have a crisis. It doesn't, what they're discovering out there doesn't fit the models that they propose. And I'm going to show you some of that and then tie it in with scripture. But the model that we use at Creation Ministries International is that God created everything that we see around us, even to the farthest galaxies, he created everything in six natural days, what we would call 24-hour days, and he did it about 6,000 years ago. And I, I suspect that there's some people out there, your heads blow apart when I say that, 6,000 years ago. The, but the model that rejects God as the creator is in crisis. And just so you think I'm inventing that, here's an example from New Scientist where they actually said it's a cosmological crisis. And I had actually called my presentation before I found this a cosmological crisis. So it's nice to see that the secular world agrees with me that there is a crisis. So when we look at the non-biblical model for the origin of the universe, I just read to you this one example. He says, in the beginning there was nothing, and then a big bang just exploded, and we have everything came out of that big bang. Now, think about this for a minute. Just think logically. If there was truly nothing, how does it explode into something? Think of the logic on that. You have 
nothing is creating something. And yet in the scriptures, they open up in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Not nothing, but God. And we have another example. I'm sure you've heard of Stephen Hawking. He's now dead, but he said, in the if the universe is really completely self-contained, having no boundary or edge, it would have neither beginning nor end. It would simply be. What place then for a creator? In his book, There, A Brief History of Time, he, Carl Sagan writes the introduction, and, and in both Hawking and Sagan say, there's no room for a creator. That's their conclusion. And I'm, my conclusion is the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So, the fundamental question that we always have to ask is, is the Bible true? Can we trust the Bible? Well, back in the time of the Renaissance and in it, moving into the early Reformation period, you remember that Galileo, and Galileo was often credited with this statement, but in fact it wasn't him, it was the cardinal. He says, the Bible teaches us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. And they were responding to events that were transpiring, like Copernicus proposing a new model against the Ptolemaic model of the solar system. And basically, Galileo was in trouble with the church because he was saying, let's look at these new models. And the Roman Catholic Church wasn't keen on that at the time. But so the argument is, well, the Bible's not a science textbook. I know a person who's a professor at a prominent seminary, and basically is, I'm not a scientist, I'm not going to even try to deal with this. You don't have to be a scientist to address the problems with the world's view of cosmology. Where the Bible speaks, and when you mentioned this, where the Bible speaks in historical account in Genesis 1, it is dealing with historical fact, but it's also dealing with scientific facts. Both are there. And so the problem is that man's interpretation, how we look at what the Bible says, is warped. Paul says that in, in Romans 1 that we suppress the truth by nature. We push it down. And so that's the real problem is how we come at looking at the scriptures. So the origin of the universe is not a scientific study. It is a historical study. The problem is you cannot repeat the origin of the universe. So we are dealing with a historical phenomenon, not an experimental phenomenon. So we're not actually dealing with science. We're dealing with history when we deal with the origin of the universe. And so one of the things we've got to be very cautious about doing, and some of you may have heard of Dr. Francis Schaeffer, but he actually mentioned this. My dad, we were actually at, worked at Labrie. My dad worked at Labrie uh, for two years in Switzerland. But Dr. Schaeffer would say this idea of creating a two-story universe, the story that deals with faith and the story that deals with science. And he would say, we don't want to do that. The Bible is both historically accurate, scientifically accurate, and it is a faithful representation of reality. So the only true view of reality is actually the biblical view. It's the only true view of reality. Now, God doesn't leave us ignorant of how things came into existence. He gives us a historical account in Genesis 1. 
And so where God speaks and declares what he did, we need to listen to what he says. So, why does it even matter? For example, some people say, well, can't we hold to a theory of the Big Bang as an origin of the universe and fit that in with the Bible? There are many prominent Christian apologists who hold that view. They actually say that the Big Bang is how God created. And then you have people say, well, couldn't the universe be billions of years old? And then at some point, God injected a human personality into part of what he was had under an evolutionary process. Other people try to propose that we can insert billions of years between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 as an example. And they would say, well, isn't there lots of evidence that the universe is billions of years old? So I'll look at that as we go along. And then they the canard, the idea that, well, we see starlight and stars are millions of light years away, even billions of light years away. So how can we see that starlight if the starlight has been traveling for millions and billions of years, then the universe can't be 6,000 years old. So these are the kinds of issues. And so if the universe is really billions of years old, then we have a problem because we can't accept the plain reading of Genesis 1 and 2. So let's look first at the Big Bang, the supposed way that the universe came into existence. This is the leading naturalistic theory, and it's, it's everywhere in the media all the time, uh, that this is how the universe came into existence. Now, some Christians claim that this is how God created it, but it's inconsistent with the biblical account. On the left, I have a sequence that the evolutionary cosmology, evolutionary biology uses, and that in the beginning there was a big bang, and all of the energy and light and matter came out of that big bang, which was out of a cosmic ripple in nothing. And then stars began to coalesce out of that dust, and then as the nebula theory, the earth coalesced around that, and so on and so on. If you take the account right out of Genesis 1, you just read it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and so on. That's the sequence on the right. You cannot bring these two sequences together. The, there's a basic law of logic called the law of non-contradiction. If you have two contrary ideas, you cannot have both of them be right. At least one of them's got to be wrong. Both could be wrong. Now, the only exception is if you're a Buddhist. In the Buddhist mind, he can hold two contrary ideas and, and be content with that until you attempt to cheat him of his change. Then there's truth and error, isn't there? So, putting that model aside, these two models are absolutely in conflict with one another. At least one of them's got to be wrong. Both could be wrong, theoretically, but at least one of them's got to be wrong. So look, look, let's look at the Big Bang for a moment. It is supposedly how the world began, and it's presented as a fact in the media. Here's an, an example of uh, 
discoveries that were made in the cosmic background radiation, and they say it's like looking at God, the holy grail of cosmology. And this was an example from Scientific American, where they say, sorry, it didn't, it's hard to read that, but it's presented as a fact. I should have had a call out there. And here we have this discovery of the cosmic background radiation. It doesn't, it says, the dis oh yes, the point here is that uh, very shortly after the Scientific American account came out, declaring that this was looking at God and it has solved all the cosmology project. A month later, they said this does not actually prove the validity of the Big Bang. A month later. And so, what are some of the problems with the Big Bang model? One is it assumes that the universe is expanding everywhere simultaneously. Everything is going on simultaneously. So a simple question is, who gave the command so that coordinating all of this simultaneous activity? The, another problem is that Everything we know about the universe right now is it is expanding and it is expanding at a faster and faster and faster rate. It's getting faster all the time. So originally when the Big Bang model was proposed in cosmology models, the idea was that it was expanding and it would start to slow down and slow down and then eventually it would collapse down on itself, everything would recoalesce and then it explode again. But now what they're finding is there's no evidence that it's slowing down and it's getting faster in its expansion. Well, the problem with this is that the density of the universe, the gravity of the entire universe is not sufficient to keep it from slowing down. That it just keeps spreading apart faster and faster. And... The other problem with this model is it proposes what's called a perpetual motion machine because if you can have a universe that expands and then eventually collapses down on itself and then re-expands and collapses down on itself over billions of years, all that energy decay is somehow regenerated and it, it's contrary to the second law of thermodynamics, but putting that aside. And then scientists have then proposed, well, we don't, in all the matter that we see out there in the universe, we don't see enough of it to keep it from exploding out and expanding. And so, therefore, they propose something called dark matter. And it's long believed that this dark matter is there, but no evidence of it, and they are hoping it's there. Otherwise, there's nothing to slow down the expansion. And so this persistent claim that they're finding dark matter and detecting it, every time they say we have evidence of it, it's, they retract it, and it's a constant problem. And what does this point to? It points to the universe is a single one-time event. It had a start, a beginning, and it is expanding and accelerating, and there's nothing to pull it back and to slow it down from its expansion. So where is this missing matter? Astronomers just found a second galaxy. This was put out last year in April. Astronomers just found a second galaxy containing no dark matter. And it's going to change everything we know about how galaxies are formed. Well, no surprise there. They're never going to find this dark matter. 
And we have examples after example of this. And this particular quote that I put up here, he's saying that there are alternatives to this, to the expanding universe, but the problem is that if we look at an alternative, it ends up putting the earth at the center of the universe. Now, from a biblical perspective, we can certainly accept that, but the cosmologists don't want that. The earth is just an odd phenomenon, the edge of a spiral galaxy in the edge of a massive universe. But the way the biblical model looks is at the very center of the universe was the earth. Not necessarily at the very center of a solar system or necessarily at the center of our galaxy, but in the grand scheme of things. So they reject the model precisely because it puts the earth at the center of the universe and this is the idea that we reject it because then it was created for man. God created it for man. And of course, if the earth is at the center of the universe, it points to creation. So if we go beyond that, some of the problems with it is a problem what is called homogeneity. If you were to take all of the matter in the universe at the and spread it out uniformly, that is the density it would occur at. One part in 10,000. That's actually 10,000 pixels and one pixel showing you there. That would be the average density across the universe if you were to take all the matter. And so what we have is a problem if matter is exploded out initially and is uniformly distributed, how does it come together to form matter Pieces of matter would bounce off of one another and gravity would not be sufficient to make them coalesce. So we have a problem. How did matter begin to cluster in to form parts of the universe? And so, as this article here says, scientists are still unsure of how exactly the solar system was created. Surprise, surprise. Every model that they come up with doesn't explain it. This is what's called the nebula theory of how stars form. And they go through various life cycles from red giants to white dwarfs and so on. The interesting thing is that none of this is based on empirical evidence. Nobody has ever seen a star form other than God who created them. And so these are just theories and they've never actually seen it. And then we have this article here. Uh, you may have he heard of Neil deGrasse Tyson. He, he presents on television shows and things. But he says research would offer plenty of convincing reasons for why stars could never form. And he believes in evolutionary cosmology. And yet he says if, if we didn't see it there, we could never explain it. And yet he admits it. But there's a problem. So not only do we have a problem of how matter begins to cluster but, and stars form, but how did the planets form? The outward expansion of the universe and the outward expansion of these gases, hydrogen, helium, and so on, is much stronger than the gravitational force of small little tiny particles. A grain of matter to coalesce by chance in the universe of the size of a grain of sand would take three billion years, one particle, and yet we have huge planets and suns and all kinds of things and galaxy clusters. The 
So then, how did these galaxies form? So here we have an example. Uh, James Treffle, he says, the problem of explaining the existence of galaxies is one of the thorniest in cosmology. They simply shouldn't be there. That's his conclusion. And we keep going on. Not only are there galaxies, planets, stars, planets, galaxies, but there's entire clusters of galaxies working together in the universe, galaxy clusters. And this article says numerous attempts have been made to explain how this miracle is supposed to have happened. Little more than a genius hand-waving. This is not a Christian writing this. This is out of a scientific publication. In fact, it was in Nature. Notice they say galaxies and galaxy clusters are highly structured, and then they say this is a miracle, and the explanation is hand-waving. Take it up. Now, we have this problem here. This is how stars are supposed to have formed. Initially, there was this gaseous cloud, and then the gravity started to pull the gases together, and particles were going around the sun, and then those particles started to coalesce and to form into planetoids and eventually into planets. That's the model. Let's look at some of the problems. Well, in contrast to that, we have, what does God say? On the fourth day of creation, God created all the planets, the sun, the moon, and everything. The earth was created on the first day, but everything else was created on the fourth day. So, simple problems. If you're spinning something around your head and you let it go, does it continue going in a circle? No, it goes off wherever it did. How does material that's going in a, in a straight line motion, exploding out, start to go into a spiral motion? In fact, one person has said, well, the planets contain less than 1% of the mass of the solar system, but 98% of the angular momentum. That is their speed and direction. And so a theory that fails to account for this particular fact is ruled out before it starts. And you know the problem. If you're spinning something around your head and you let it go, and yet how are these supposed to have begun to form in circles? We have other problems in the formation of the solar system. In parts of the solar system, for instance, Venus and Uranus spin in the opposite direction of other planets. And 11 of the 32 moons are in retrograde motion. So if everything's going around the sun this way and spinning this way, how does stuff decide to start spinning in the opposite direction? So then you have to propose a theory called moon capture and planet capture. And so one person says the modern solar system simply offers no suitable mechanism through which moons could be captured. Because you start to have to have half of the moons and two of the planets have to be captured in our, into our solar system. We have a problem that the planets are all different in their composition and the moon is a different composition of the earth and yet the moon is supposed to have hived off the earth or it was captured. But how do you explain the complete difference of the gas giants and the uh, iron core of the earth and all these if everything was supposed to have formed out of the same dust cloud around the sun? We have various books and I have them back on the table 
uh, in describing some of these challenges. You can also go to creation.com if you're interested and you want to see some of this. So there's a lot of problems with the Big Bang. It's untestable, and this article here that was in Scientific American says it reflects faith as much as objective truth. And the irony is that they would claim that Christians are working on blind faith. And yet the cosmological model is, has to be accepted on blind faith. So some of the challenges with modern cosmology. Simulations demonstrate that the planetary system challenges generally accepted theories of planet formation. And here we have some other examples. A discovery poses a cosmic puzzle. Can a distant quasar lie within a nearby galaxy? Their models say no. Hubble telescope uncovers a black hole that shouldn't exist, according to their models. Here's an example that a planet in uh, Kepler so-and-so, a planet that shouldn't exist. It couldn't have formed so close to its star, nor could it have moved there. Here's another example. Astronomers discover a planet that shouldn't be there. New exoplanet, too big for its star. Challenging the ideas of how planets form. A forbidden planet where no Neptune-sized planets should normally be found. Here we have another. The surprise, these galaxies appear to be more fully formed and mature than expected at this early stage in the evolution of the universe. Current cosmological theory rests on a disturbingly small number of independent observations and a planet that shouldn't exist. Much more mass than theoretical models produce. You see, if you follow the, the literature, you start to see the cosmological crisis is out there. Their models simply don't explain how the universe formed how galaxies formed, how galaxy clusters formed, how stars formed, how planets formed, how planets started to go around the suns. It, it just it doesn't work. And yet, every time they publish it in the popular literature, they'll say, you know, Big Bang Theory, and they assume it's a fact. So, the cosmological model of the Big Bang has serious problems. So other models have been proposed. Hoyle, for example, proposed the eternal universe model. We have uh, the multiverse. This is very popular in science fiction right now. And the people have doppelgangers and all kinds of things in science fiction. And that our universe just happens to be the one that came into existence by chance that is habitable. And there may be others, Earth 3 and Earth 10 and so on. But then... There's millions and billions of universes that are dysfunctional. That's the concept. And then the spontaneous creation of matter, that the universe is actually a steady state and new matter is just coming into existence spontaneously. Common sense here, fellows. Common sense. What do these all have as problems? First of all, every one of these models contradicts the second law, both laws of thermodynamics, that the universe is decaying into chaos, as Paul says, the whole creation groans, waiting for its redemption. Going back to Genesis 3, 17 to 19, the curse on creation. Adam brought decay into the universe. 
And so one scientist says, the greatest puzzle is where all the order of the universe came from, from an originally unwinding toward disorder. How can there be order in a universe that's in decay? Well, we know because God created it originally as an ordered universe. So then the fundamental question is, what started it all? Well, some say the question is absolutely meaningless. We're here, let's just accept it. Well, this is question begging. And here we have a person who says the answer to the question is why it happened. I offer the modest proposal that our universe is simply one of those things that happens from time to time. And that was published in the Ottawa Citizen. I, I'm sorry, but how stupid can these brilliant people be? Another problem is that they constantly have this idea that nothing created something. If, if it's an eternal universe, which it can't be, but if it were everything else, nothing, if it's not God, then nothing had to create it. So there's no such thing as a free lunch, or so the saying goes. But that may not be true on the grandest cosmic scale. Many physicists now believe the universe arose out of nothingness during the Big Bang, which means that nothing must have somehow turned into something. So what is the big deal? This quote goes on. The biggest of all is how you get something from nothing. Don't let cosmologists try to kid you on this one. They have not got a clue either, despite the fact that they are doing a pretty good job of convincing themselves and others that this is really not a problem. In the beginning, they will say there was nothing, no time, space, matter, energy, and then there was a quantum fluctuation. And then he goes on, he says, whoa, stop there. You see what I mean? First there's nothing, and then there's something. And the cosmologists tried to bridge the two with a quantum flutter, a tremor of uncertainty that sparks it all. And then they are away, and before you know it, they have pulled a hundred billion galaxies out of their quantum hats. But there is a very real problem in explaining how it got started in the first place. You cannot fudge this by appealing to quantum mechanics. Either there is nothing to begin with, in which case there's no quantum vacuum, no pre-geometric dust, no time in which anything can happen, no physical laws that can affect a change from nothingness into somethingness. Or there is something in which case it needs explaining. And the something is the God who created the universe. So I have to say, claiming to be wise, they became fools. So the question of the beginnings is the real challenge out there. And men can't explain it, so they assume it. And so the universe, we would contest, was God tells us. He created it, and he created it about 6,000 years ago in its mature state. So, this then leads to the question, how old is the universe? An interesting problem, because evolutionary cosmologists will tell you it's 13.8 billion years old, based upon looking at 
the redshift phenomenon out there. So how do we measure the size and the age of the universe? So if you wanted to measure to the most distant stars that we can see, the first step you use is what's called the parallax method. So you see the sun at the center, and the red line going around is the Earth's uh, revolution around the sun. And if you take angled measurements from the two extreme points at the winter solstice and the summer solstice, for example, and measure that star, take the angles using, if you remember your high school trigonometry, you take the angles and you can measure the sides. Well, that parallax method can only go back to a certain distance, about uh, 300 light years. And beyond that, the angles are just, you can't measure them. They're too fine. And yet we know that there are stars that are farther away than that. So another way that they try to deal with this is they look at the frequency of the stars. And this is a spectrum here of nor normal light, outdoor sunlight. Here's a frequency of daylight. Oh, sorry, no, that, this is daylight here. They, th that's the primary spectrum up there. This is daylight spectrum. This is an incandescent light bulb. Uh, fluorescent light's terrible, terrible light. This is a, a cool white LED, so it would be around 4,000 Kelvin. And so they look at the spectrum of these uh, devices, and if they are shifted into the red shift, that means they're accelerating away, and they shift into the red, then they use this as a means of measuring how far away these are. I'm not going to consider today with you, there are problems with the redshift theory. Just let's, for the sake of discussion, assume that the redshift is a reasonable measure of how far away things are, for the sake of discussion. So then we have a problem, don't we? Because the redshift shows that these stars are billions of years away. So we have a problem, don't we? And this is the Second classic problem that's presented. The first is what started it all. And the second is, how can we see stars that are billions of years away if the universe is only 6,000 years old? So I want to propose to you some potential solutions uh, for how you... One is, often was accepted, is that God created the starlight beam as he created the star. So when Adam looked up on day six, after the stars were killed on day four, the beam was already there. That's a possibility. That's one explanation. The light may not be a constant. Back in the 70s, two uh, researchers at the Stanford Research Institute published a paper on the declining speed of light. And because they were Christians although they worked as physicists at the Stanford Research Institute, they, they, uh, their theory, their suggestion that light is decaying, the speed of light is decaying, it was laughed out. Interestingly enough, in the 90s, a, a professor of, of physics or cosmology at the Imperial College in London, England, he proposed this, and maybe the conditions in the early universe allowed light to travel faster than at present speed, a billion times faster. So as soon as it came from a non-Christian physicist, suddenly the, the idea starts to take hold. And even the popular magazines like Popular Science picks this up and said, light might be changing over time. So it, it's possible that light 
was at one time extremely fast and has been slowing down. That's a possibility. Another possibility is to apply Einstein's theory of relativity. And this is one that Watts Humphreys, who's one of our writers, has published in the past, although CMI is taking now a different model. But the idea that, that if you apply the theory of relativity, I'm not going to get it into the complexities of it. Actually, I can, if you're interested, I can recommend some really good books, one by Jason Lyle, who's written in The Creation. It's an excellent book on relativity. But simply put, the, from our perspective, the Earth may be six thousand years old, but from the universe's perspective, it might be billions of years old. Another is that time may actually flow at different rates. The other was that the speed of light is decaying, but time is a constant. Well, interesting enough, Einstein proposed that time is a variable. And up until Einstein did that, I think it was in 1905 that he published that idea. Up until then, the idea was that time was a constant. In fact, some of the philosophers, like Immanuel Kant, they would argue that God has to exist in time because time is a universal. Einstein tipped that completely on its head and said time isn't a universal. Time is variable. It took many decades before we were able to demonstrate that Einstein was right. The GPS satellites, all of your cell phones connect to GPS satellites. The GPS satellites, because they are away from the Earth and they're traveling fast, the clocks, identical clocks to on Earth, run faster than on Earth. And every few minutes they have to recalibrate the GPS clocks or you would be kilometers off from where you're supposed to be. So we know that time actually is not a constant. Actually, I just have to mention, Jason Lyle actually says that when you're in an automobile and you're driving at 100 kilometers an hour, you actually, your clocks actually speed up. Even your mechanical clocks, even your uh, digital clocks, they actually speed up. We don't see it because of our speed, but as we approach the speed of light, our clocks would speed way up. That's another possibility. Time is a variable. We know it's a variable now. It's mind-blowing to not think of time as a constant. Time runs faster, no question, away from gravity wells, and it runs faster as you speed up. Another possibility is the stars and galaxies aren't as far away as they appear. Another possibility, and Jason Lyle who's a Christian, he wrote this, and it's a fascinating paper, pretty technical though, but he argues that the only way we can measure the speed of light is the round speed. So we bounce a laser off of a reflector that was placed on the moon, and we track how long it took, and we can measure the speed of light very accurately, up and back. But he, he shows that the models work quite well if you have an instantaneous inbound speed and, and a different outbound speed, overall average. It's a possibility. This is the, the model that within CMI that we're currently using, and I have two copies of um, the book back there. Uh, it was developed originally by an Israeli physicist, not a believer, and it's called relativistic time dilation. And our physicist, who's on one of our physicists, actually we have one in Canada and multiple ones, his name is John Hartnett. He has reworked Carmeli's work out of Israel, 
And it's, it's absolutely fascinating what he's done there. And it's called relativistic time dilation, which is different than relativistic speed dilation. And it, it gives a very good, solid intellectual response to this problem. So I'm not saying any of these are right or wrong. I'm just saying to you that they are consistent with the idea that God stretched out the heavens and vastly accelerated it as he was building it. And these suggestions all give reasonable explanations to the assumption that a counter to the assumption that the universe is billions of years old. They be, you can solve the starlight problem. I'm not saying which one of these is right, but they're all reasonable, intellectually valid arguments. And so we can trust God's word when he says he created the universe in six days. So we have, here's Hartnett's book, and I have two copies of it back there if you're really keen. Uh, other resources, I have Dismantling the Big Bang and this Starlight on DVD. So I have those on the back table. So these are available to you. And again, you can look this up on creation.com. Maybe we can pass out that clipboard right now that's on the back table. Another possibility, which I just recommend, is you, you register for Creation Magazine. We cover different articles constantly, and we've been publishing it for 40 years. If you subscribe to it today, it's like selling vacuum cleaners here. And I will give you this, and I will give, I will give you a free copy today, and a free DVD, and you could pick the one on Starlight, for example. And the reason we do that is people say, oh, maybe I should subscribe to Creation, and they forget. So we're, it's an incentive to sign up for it. It costs $7.50 a quarter. We only charge you by the quarter. You, do, you don't have to pay in advance. And in the end, if you don't like it, you can cancel at any time. So there's no commitment. The Fill in both sides of the form, and Jennifer will take care of giving you your free items. Another is to sign up for our info bites. The second clipboards can go around. I highly recommend this. Put your email address on, your postal code, because we try to look at geographic distribution. Very interesting things. It comes out every Friday morning, and I've been subscribing to it for years. We also have the Genesis Academy, and Wayne, I would recommend that you look at buying one of these or getting one of these, because this is covering basically what you're covering in your sermon series, right? It covers the 11 chapters, and it's 12 series study that you could be used in a men's meeting or a women's meeting or a young people's meeting, that kind of stuff. And I have a couple of copies with me. This is brand new, by the way, resource. So I just want to give you a little bit of evidence that deals with the uh, age of the universe to show it. Comets is a real problem for cosmology. They cannot explain how comets exist. If the solar system is, say, five billion years old, four and a half billion years old, comets should have long ago evaporated, long ago. So they propose something called an Oort cloud. Out there somewhere is the birthplace of comets. Never been observed, no empirical evidence, and yet they claim that it's there. Comets presents a real problem. Another is stellar decay. Stars are observably decaying faster than their models would suggest. And we can observe this decay in human terms of time. A thousand years of observing these stars indicates that there's a problem there. Galaxy clusters should have dispersed long ago if the universe is 13.8 billion years ago. 
The moon should be nowhere near the earth if it's four and a half billion years old. Because it's going, it is actually moving away from the earth at three to four centimeters a year. And it should be long gone. And yet, you know, it's in a perfect position for tides and all the things that the moon does for us. And, of course, God put it there. But it should be long gone. The moon was so near the earth less than two billion years ago. And yet the moon is supposed to be four billion years old. This is a great discrepancy. Yeah, no surprise there. And then the interesting thing is this article, not by a Christian by any stretch of the imagination, it says, looking at it, it says it's probably no more than 4,000 years old. Well, surprise, surprise. So even the secular scientists who don't believe in the Bible at times stumble on truth, don't they? And so the magnetism of the earth, the magnetism of planets, you have to have all kinds of special pleading to explain how this moon has kept its magnetism because magnetic force decay. The earth's magnetic field has decayed by 40% since 1000 AD. These, uh, the magnets are decaying. Mercury's magnetism has actually been measured explicitly by planetary uh, satellites that were sent out. And it's declined 8% in 35 years. How do you explain this magnetic fields if they're 4 billion years old? Again, it supports a recent creation. And Dr. Russell Humphreys, who I mentioned, one of our scientists, he has a number of articles on magnetism. In fact, he predicted, based upon a flyby in the 70s, how Mercury's magnetic field would have declined, and then a later flyby, which I think was like in the 2010s or something, and his prediction was right on. A biblical creationist was using the biblical model to predict what would happen. So cosmology isn't fact-based. The the theories of how the cosmos formed are based on faith, and the faith is not actually supported by the evidence that's out there. Notice what this writer says. Uh, He he says that, is the universe infinite or finite? How does anyone postulate a universe with only an inside? And what about the Big Bang? And so on. And then he says, believing requires an act of faith equivalent to accepting that innumerable angels dance on pins. This is a non-Christian telling us that we have to accept these cosmological models on faith. Well, I'd rather accept what God says in his word because he was there when he created it. And so by the scriptures say, by faith we understand that the universe was formed by God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was. God created out of nothing in six days. Not nothing created. God created out of nothing about 6,000 years ago. And the heavens then declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without Excuse.
God holds us accountable to look at what he's done in the cosmos and declare, amazing God, you are the creator. The Christian faith is supported by the evidence. Unbelievers place their faith in Big Bang and biological evolution, which contradicts the facts of science. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.